1: I heated the call, maybe four steps away from the lowest, lowest point. point. Yeah, okay. so I was fortunate enough to, to really truly understand that you gotta, you know, oftentimes like if your if your parents tell you to clean the room, your version of clean the room is just throw everything in the closet, close yeah, or close the under room. the bed. Yep. And hey, right. the room looks the room does look clean, but under your bed is like you know the Philadelphia experiment or chud right. like. <laughs> <laughs> And this is this is me having to do a deep cleaning and totally empty out the room and, and do the floors and, you know, come back to a real a new me. Gentlemen and
0: ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are. Welcome to the Truth Prescription podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Seku Gathers. And each week, I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Good people, you are in for a special treat today. I had the pleasure of interviewing music industry luminary, director, producer, author, man of many titles. He's the multi-hyphenate of multi-hyphenates, Amir Khalib Thompson. You know him as Quest Love. Now, this is a very unique interview because we do discuss music periodically, but really in the context of Quest and his quest (laughs) to discover truth, to discover love and to really know and discover self-acceptance. So the first thing we talked about in terms of his truth was his acceptance of his real health battle with lymphedema. And this is a a story that's very personal, and he's actually never talked about this publicly. So I just felt very blessed that he he decided to share this on The Truth Prescription with us. We also talked about the concept of self-sabotage and how prevalent it is among super talented and creative people. We talked about the origin or real origins of his name, Questlove, because it was always confusing to me. And I, we finally was able to I was able to get a straight answer on where this name came from and why he decided to, to choose it. We jumped into the concept of talking about the typical stereotypes that most black entertainers fall into and what way he sees himself as great. And his answer will actually surprise you. There was four or five things I expected him to say and he said none of that. And just really smart, poignant, thoughtful, thoughtful answer. So definitely check that out. Really excited for you guys to hear this interview. You know, for me as a mindset coach and life strategist, the interview was amazing because it really exemplifies what my life's work is about, which is really helping people transform through excavating, clarification, And ultimately, elevation, right? It's about getting better every day. And, you know, Amir is on his own inner journey towards elevation. And so it's just amazing to be with him during this time and space, particularly with everything that's going on in the world. So sit back, relax, close your eyes and open your ears and let's get into it. Good people. Welcome back. Another episode of the Truth Description podcast. I am your humble host. Mindset Coach Dr. Seku gathers. Uh, super excited today. I have a, a legend, musician, author, investor. Am I really? <laughs> storyteller. <laughs> most importantly, student, Amir Khalib Thompson, the prince. Hello, sir. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing fantastic. I'm also,
1: you know, a, a, a satisfied client of viewers, man. Yes, satisfied. You are a satisfied client. I've known you. Uh, this is how I knew I made the big time. My <laughs> doctors can personally come to my crib <laughs> and record a podcast. I was like, wait a minute, my doctors can come to my crib. I don't have to go to them. Wow, I right, made it. Right, right,
0: yeah. and also Rolling Stone says you're the 54th greatest drummer of all time. Which There's is, a list. There's a
1: list. 100th greatest drummers of all time. You're oh, 54. Wow, I'm in the top. Okay, so That's cool. you you made it there too. It's not right, bad, man. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> not bad for some immigrants. I, I like that.
0: Cool. Yeah. Who are you, t- you telling? Yeah. All right. been doing a show for a minute. People that listen know that the truth description is basically about interfacing with the truth. Mm-hmm. Right. The truth mm-hmm. is what often makes us uncomfortable. And, you know, I really wanted this interview to, to be more about you. I mean, obviously we'll touch on the music, mm-hmm. but you've got probably hundreds or thousands of interviews about you talking about music. And oh, I'm so glad to not talk about music. Yeah. 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 So we're going to talk about you, you know what I mean, in in, in your life and some of the things you've gone through. So give us a story, because like I said at the top, you are a storyteller. Um, Mm -hmm. Directorial debut coming up soon. Congratulations. Thank you. We'll talk about that later. But tell us a story about a time in your life, either personally or professionally, where there was a truth that you either were ignoring or you weren't aware of. (laughs) But once you accepted it, you had a breakthrough somewhere. Right. Whether it was personal or, you know,
1: in love or in in your career. Right. No, hands down. And, you know, I've been slowly sharing this during like quarantine. I've always kept this close to the hip. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, sort of in the cycle of of what is now, you know, post-normal times or whatever, the new normal. I'll say that for me, the period of my life, which is, Known as sort of like my ongoing battle with lymphedema, mm. was probably one of the biggest wake up calls ever. You're black, so you might <laughs> understand this, but you're also a doctor, so you might not understand this. But hey, listen, most black people, even on death's doorbed, I remember a few times like where my dad had a few heart attacks, and mm. it was sort of like, all right, I'll just take some bear. I ain't going to the hospital, you know, that sort of thing. He'd have like, Oh, I gotta sit down, maybe I got gas or something. Like, you gotta go to the hospital. No, 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 no. And then, like, it'll happen again. And then, maybe like four weeks from now, it's like, You should probably go to the hospital, dad. And then they're like, You had a heart attack. Oh my god, <laughs> You didn't have a heart attack. Yeah, you know, right, that sort right. of thing. Same with us, man. The long story short of it, August of 1998, mm. we had just finished recording our fourth album things fall apart and like we were in the final stages of it okay the only reason why i remember this so well is it's it's whatever the week that lauren hill's miseducation of lauren hill came out Mm. so back then records used to come out on a tuesday we had just finished like our album and kind of as like a celebration ritual after living like a hermit for like a year and a half like just only doing the studio nothing mm-hmm. else and day and night studio 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 me and one of the members of the group decided okay we're gonna go to great adventure six flags <laughs> okay and so that friday night we planned it all right man we're gonna try get up six in, in jersey jackson yeah, yeah, jackson okay. yeah just all excited we're gonna go to a great adventure have fun da-da-da-da. the albums didn't you know the album's finished let's celebrate and that's my version of Celebrate. I'm certain that, you know, most other people like either go to Cabo or go to strip club. But, you know, my thing was like great adventure. Right. And um, I woke up the next day. The only way I can describe it is if you remember Tom Hanks' movie Big, mm-hmm. the morning he woke up and that 12-year-old kid turned into a 32-year-old Tom Hanks. And he was like looking in the mirror like, what the hell happened to me? Like, I woke up one day, and it was like I was the Incredible Hulk. Like, I looked at my feet, and I was like, whoa, where did this come from? Right. Wow. And I thought it was like a dream. Like, my feet were like, at, at that time, right below, from my knees to my ankles. My, You know, maybe, you know, I was a big guy. But I was, I, was in, I was in proportion. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, but I looked at my ankles, and I was like, yo, like what the hell happened to like, this was overnight. And then I was like, wait a minute. So then, you know, like I put a pair of pants on and then like the left leg had a hard time going through the thing. And I'm like, wait a minute. I wore these pants last night and Mm. I knew it was normal. What the hell just happened to me? Wow! Like, it's one of those things where it's like, oh my God, what happened? And I thought, well, okay, let me sit upside down for like 20 minutes and see what happens. And it was still there. And I was like, ah, I got to, let me run down to the kitchen and get some ice. So I got like some peas and anything out the fridge that was freezing. I put them on my feet, like maybe that'll go down. And it wasn't going anywhere. And now, was it just the foot or the leg as well? It was, it was the ankle. The ankle it was yeah. like, it was like right below the calf at the time, the right ankle. And then I ran to my sneaker collection because in my mind, I was still in denial like, no, there's no way. Like, I just, I know what my feet felt like. So let me run and get my Nikes. And I couldn't put my shoes on. And I was like, what the hell is happening to me? Wow. And so then I was like, what do I do? And then my my quick Band-Aid fix was, well, I ran to, first thing I did was like, I hopped in, I didn't drive in, hopped in a cab, ran to the big and tall store to now go up like four sizes than what I normally was to get. Pants that fit and sneakers that fit. And I was like, wait, is this a dream? Like, I know I could fit everything in my closet yesterday. And now overnight, this is happening to me. Like, it, there's a big difference between like, when you think you're gaining weight and like, oh, these pants don't fit anymore. And then you wake up and then you see an additional 12 pounds has been added to your body and you don't know right. what to do about Literally it. Literally overnight. Yeah, so I got through that day, but I didn't I didn't know what to do and it was like a it was a weird sense of I don't know what happened, like it literally started the beginning of a very slow phase of shame mm. that I went through. Okay. I won't generalize and say black people, but I'll just say that the household I grew up in, the the I never once thought go to hospital right now.
0: Mm.
1: Like you only go to hospital if you're about to die. Like this is a guy who has great teeth. This is a guy who until the tonight show, like maybe my last visit to the dentist was like maybe 37 years ago. Wow. Now, of course I go regularly. So anyway, um, my, my whole thing was just like, okay, let me, uh, Kind of pretend that it's not there, right? And this is 1998 and 99. Man, was such it was such. You know, secrets secrets will always kill you, no matter what secret you're holding. Secrets will always always kill you. And so, just to keep that in, you know, because I didn't want to tell anybody, I don't want to show, I don't want to show nobody. Because I mean, by this point, by the week, then it just started going into like Michelin man. You don't know the reference, just Google. Yeah, yeah, Google, yeah. Yeah, like my legs were looking like the Michelin man. And for me, the most important thing was to hide it. And Mm -hmm. so just the levels of what I would do to suppress it, just, okay, I'll buy all black, stop wearing shorts, buy all black clothes, make sure no one sees below my knees, Mm -hmm. stay behind the drum set, don't Like, even if I'm, like, sitting in the uh, a couch area or the reception area with the rest of the band and any shots of my ankle, like, I always made sure, like, the chair was proportioned so that you'd never see my feet or any of those things. Um, and then that was cool for maybe, like, five months. And then my body decided to turn it up another level to see if I would heed the call to, like, okay, something's wrong here. Right. And, um, and then I started leaking. And the the levels of... Through the skin. Through the skin. So what would happen, you know, during this time point, during this period, the roots had always been road dogs. Like ever since we started in 87 as a band in high school, we took it way serious in 92, sort of like the incarnation that you now know as the roots. Really 92, even though we started in 87 in high school, we just like messed around and Did talent shows, but not like real gigs and stuff like that. So, But since 92, like we've been, we decided that we're going to just live on the road, which means that, you know, the average band would just carve out maybe three to four months to travel and do shows. Do America, do Europe, South America, other parts, Asia, Africa, if you're that big or whatever. But we just decided like, nope, 10 months out the year, always- Living more on a tour bus in a hotel than you do at home. And that's when we weren't successful. That's when we were like struggling just to get a foot in the door. right? So by this point, this is when like suddenly the roots are like an actual thing and we're touring and all those things. And our album just came out. So like by this point, March or April, we're up every morning at 3 a.m. in the hotel lobby by 5. On a plane for three to four hours, depending coast. You know, some nights, the, like the week the album came out, we hit ten cities and maybe uh, six days. Ooh, you know, wow. do do an in-store in store wow. in Jersey one morning, fly to Virginia to do an afternoon signing at Tower Records, and then uh, maybe fly to Florida to Miami to do a show that night at 10 p.m. But then fly to San Diego to do some like college at eight in the morning for the students there and then drive to a record store four hours away. Like it was constantly uh, 10 months out of the year, somewhere between 16 to 20 hours every day. Um, and wow. being in the air, um, especially with, uh, you know, the way that air pressure works. Correct. You know, sometimes your ears closes, whatever, but that's when, the only way I can describe it is if you fill a water balloon up, and then you just slightly poke it. Like it won't explode. Like sometimes it won't explode like normal balloons do when you put a, a needle on it. It'll just leak. Mm-hmm. And so then that game started happening for the next three years. Like Wow. Leaking. Yeah. yeah. Like get in a plane, pray to God that the air pressure is cool. 45 minutes later, you hear the denim of like your left leg. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the floor. And then you look at your, you know, your, your leg imprint, you see that, okay, it's starting to leak. And if it's longer than four hours, God help you because there was one point where, um. Now you flying commercial or private? I was flying commercial. So then it, there comes the thing where like, uh, you know, there will be a, a, a slight puddle on the ground mm-hmm. yeah. and, and an unexplainable puddle. Right. Did you
0: be on yourself? To like, your well, neighbor. Right, right, right.
1: To your neighbor. To so now it's like, okay, Amir, do you go to the hospital and get help? Or do you still continue this charade of trying to hide it? Mm. And of course, uh, I ain't going to the hospital. Let me try to hide this shit. <laughs> so then you make sure that you're on the plane first. So you can grab the blankets first so that you can cover your legs in case the leakage happens. Uh-huh. Then I had to take it up an extra notch and, you know, go to Hudson News, buy like extra Evian water. I would, this is how bad it got. Like wow. I would buy prop Evian water and, uh, and, and pretend spill it and pretend that I spilled it. Wow. Ah, damn, wow. I spilled it. Wow. Just so I wouldn't have to explain like what this water puddle is doing, like dripping from my chair area in, in first class. And, you know, it's just wow. to live like that, man. And because the thing is, like, night after night, I look like, what the hell? It's like the elephant man. Like, what the fuck is happening to me? So, you know, imagining just, just imagine the conflict of living a, living a duplicitous life where you're Superman mm-hmm. to a whole bunch of people mm-hmm. but you got this your thing you're got Clark Kent. Eye. Right. It's yeah. like you're Clark Kent and you're Superman at the same time. So you're dealing with you know, this is the first time I'm dealing with the the sentence, Questlove, you changed my life. Oh, my God. This this is the greatest thing. And, and, you know, you're my hero. And then, you know, to go home at night and you pray to God that, you know, and this messes up every area of your life. Of course. With intimacy, with with dating, with all that things. Because now it's like. Uh, why are you keeping you
0: keep your pants on, Questlove? What's going Dude. on? Dude,
1: and, yeah. and going... Why are
0: keeping your shoes on? What's going on?
1: Getting people to right. uh, uh, get water pills for me. Because oh, then yeah. I thought, if I get water pills, that'll get rid yeah. of whatever is right. And that would work. That was like a slight Band-Aid over a bullet wound. So mm-hmm. like water pills, water pills would ensure that in the morning, it would look kind of normal for maybe like three hours. And then the eventual sand glassing. So now I'm living a Cinderella thing where I'm timing it. So to know that, okay, by 7 p.m., like, I'm, I'm going to go from, uh, uh, from buddy love to whatever the professor was. and okay, right. Back to the W. Professor Right? Klump? No, no. <laughs> right. So yeah, like yeah, all my dates yeah. would be like afternoon. Hey, babe, let's do lunch. Like looking at my leg, like, okay, you know, because 7 p.m., this thing is going to like blow up and then suddenly you can't fit this. And God forbid if I have on like, like a Levi jean that has a small calf in it. Yeah. Like, so I'm watching out for that too, like to see like what the condition of my leg looks like, like does it look normal when people are like, wait, do you have leggings on? Like those are interesting jeans. I've never seen those before. Cause mm. it's like, you know, it's like baggy up here, but like tight, uh, it's, it's baggy above the knee, but t- tight below. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, um, then the jig was up. The jig was up when we shot our video to the next movement. For one second I dropped my guard to I felt slight leakage in the pants I was wearing. And um, I was like, okay, let me run and change real quick into a backup pair of pants. Mm-hmm. Again, still hide in plain sight. Make sure the wardrobe person gets me two of every outfit. Why do you want two of every outfit? Dude? You can keep this one. Mm-hmm. Just give me two. Like, don't ask me no questions. <laughs> and um I didn't notice, but I found like a, a, a corner to change in real quick. So I thought, mm. and I didn't realize that my manager was there. And all I heard was, oh my fucking God, what the fuck happened to you? And I, I wow. jumped wow. and I couldn't hide anymore. Like he's looking at me and he's just like, dude, what happened to your leg?
0: What are you doing?
1: Yeah. And I. Is this uh, Richard Nichols? Richard Nichols. Right. Yeah. The jig was up and wow. he instantly, Wow! I said, look, let me just use this. We were like on the last scene and I thought I was going to hang out with somebody in LA, you know, with dry clothes on. But he's like, no, you're going to Mount Cedar side of I right now. At the time, they didn't know what to make of it. Well, yeah, because it had been now like probably five years, right? Since that initial... By this point, well, by this point, it was... It was like mid-1999. So this is like oh, almost so. short, that's short a year yeah. later. Okay, okay. So but that long. Okay. I, I'd never heard the term lymphedema until maybe by 2003, I heard of it. Okay. Because the thing is that- um, Were they calling it elephantiasis? Were they, um, they, they, they weren't they, calling it anything. They didn't, have, they didn't have a title for anything. Interesting. And I, I explained that, you know, like one day I just woke up and- it was like I was handed a prison sentence and no one told me about it. And I, I don't know what to do. Like, you know, so naturally they thought like, okay, well, it's the weight. da blah, 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 blah. You know, so I just struggle with it. So disclosure, in 2001, I did gastric. Okay. And the thing that really made it, that made that problematic was that I was losing weight everywhere. Except below the knee. Yeah. So now it's like. Because
0: it's a fluid problem. It's not a fat problem.
1: Right. And so the thing is, is that I, at my smallest, I got down to like size 40. Okay. But below the knee, I kind of have to be a 48. And then people were like joking with me, like, Amir, why are you wearing all these baggy ass clothes? Like, you know, and. I still can't explain to them. Mm-hmm. Cause one, I don't know what to call it. Cause you know, I'm just thinking like, is this a, a, a weight thing, a fat thing, a da da thing? Like, I don't I don't know what's going on. And eventually, I believe a receptionist at a studio we were at told me that she had the same thing on her arms. She started using the C word a lot. Like, you know, I was dealing with breast cancer. I had swelling on the arms, and she Googled something. And she showed me like various legs that look like mine. Mm. And that's when I read the word lymphedema. And I was like, dude, I've been looking for whatever this thing is called that I don't know what it is. She said, well, you know, lucky for you, you're from Pennsylvania, you're from Philadelphia. And the number one specialist of this treatment is at University of Penn, at Penn Hospital. Mm. And I was like, great. I was born in Penn Hospital, so this shouldn't be a problem. I went there and, for that entire summer, like between like two thousand three, two thousand five, man, it was a trying thing because what I would have to do was basically take four hours out of my day every day, show up at this clinic at like maybe seven in the morning.
0: Were you, where were you living at the time?
1: I was living in Philadelphia. You, li- you live in Philly, okay? Northern Liberties, and they would do this process where they would delicately wrap your entire leg like a mummy. So yep. they start at the pinky toe. Yep. So imagine taking like that white adhesive tape and wrapping your pinky toe and then wrapping your pinky toe in your other toe and then wrapping your pinky toe, your other toe in the third toe and then your pinky toe then the fourth toe and then the fifth toe and then wrapping, oh, wrapping, wrapping. Tight. Right. Yep. And then going to your ankle. So it's like a four hour process for them to start at the pinky toe and wrap all the way up to my knee every day. Yeah. And then it's like, do I have to hire a full-time nurse to be with me 24-7 when I go on tour and blah, 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 and da, 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 and da, da, da. So the swelling was clearly, it, it would go down, right, with that. It and, would slightly go down, right? but it was like, was it worth it? What wound up happening was, I think, by like mid-2006, because I, I just got tired. Mm-hmm. Because then there's also another component and that component is that I did the, I did the physical work to lose the weight, Mm -hmm. to eat right, to exercise and all those things. And instantly like, you know, my world entirely changed. And by that, I mean like how people treat you. So what do you mean? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know. I mean, even as, as me, as Questlove or whatever, I mean, yes, you know, there was respect and all that stuff and all those things, you know, like, oh, like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a quasi-celebrity or whatever. Um, but once the weight eliminated, then there was another level, there was another chamber I never knew about. Like suddenly, <laughs> suddenly girls are like, well, you know can we right. come up to your room and da interesting right. and I was like wait and and but here's the weird here's the weird shit about it here's the weird shit about it. I started getting angry
0: interesting well, well I was yeah. like, oh, no how can you like me before right, right. yeah and you yeah. know and Straight name
1: up. name like any actress of that time period, like, oh okay word, so now now interesting I can take you out on a date, but you know back in two thousand one, you weren't. When I met you at the premiere, you was like, eh, I don't know, whatever. So then like huh. I started getting, I didn't do, I didn't do the mental work that I should have done. I didn't do the mental work that I'm doing right now that COVID yeah. made yeah, me made do, you do last yeah. year. Yeah. So back in 2004, 2005, 2006, I didn't do that work. And I started getting angrier. So between, between this new chip on shoulder Oh, why are you being nice to me? Oh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I'm cute now because you didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't a reaction. I'm like, oh, words. So, oh, word, you feeling me? All right, let's go. Like, then I just became like belligerent. I'm like, oh, why are you really <laughs> here? Huh? Are you, are you a talk like that to him? Oh, I was the worst. I was the rudest person ever, yo. I was, I was bitter because my thing was yeah, like, yeah, no, I get it, no, I get it. I was, felt the same way
0: when I graduated from med school. Same thing. I get it. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Now that thing. you're doctor, yeah, it's like, like, oh,
1: hey, yeah, exactly. Hey. No, I, I right. totally feel you. I, yeah, I, I've or, heard many a hey between my 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. or like you talking to me
0: at a party and you don't know what I do, and then. You kind of like whatever, but then, then you, you put find somebody to find together. out and then, oh, hey, they and ch- I'm right, like, Come right, on, man, get out of here with that. Anyway,
1: so, I get it. So, yeah, between that happening and just the tiresome, the, the very exhausting game of su- suppressing this, this affliction that I'm yeah. forced to live with. Yeah. And. You know, like having to rap, getting up in the morning, rapping. All right, babe, you gotta go.
0: It's five in the morning.
1: Uh, uh, <laughs> hey, hey, uh, I don't know. To tell you <laughs> right. Just I got tired of hiding, man. So unfortunately, my choice was, man i I liked it better when I was fat. Mm. So I actually wow made. That's a, deep. I made a conscious decision to like put the weight back on because yeah. I thought, well at least with the top half of me balanced to the bottom half of me. Like I'd rather people just think I was fat than I have some sort of unpronounceable disease or infliction. It's the same thing. It's weird. You know, it's weird. Um, I've been going over the Michael Jackson transcripts. There's, there's, a, there's a documentary that they're working on right now about the whole Post-1993 Michael Jackson situation, which, I mean, kind of points to his innocence, but there's one thing that when he was, uh, he discovered the vertigo after the, the Pepsi fire. Yeah. So when he got those third degree burns and they were trying to differentiate the difference between the third degree burn and what's this thing on your back. He's been dealing with some form of lupus since like 1977. Okay. And never dealt with it. And once it was first presented to him that you're kind of in the early stages of that, I wouldn't do this tour if we were you. Like, you need to take a year out to do this, da 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 da. His decision to not do that was based on, I mean, you know, again, Black people's relationship with. Science and medicine and all things medical. I'm sure now today, like even you're somewhat frustrated by like these like hotep Facebook takes on fuck oh, that yeah, man. I, yeah. you know, I don't believe in science and <laughs> they are trying to get us. And, you know, and, and I understand, I understand that the genesis of that is based on our experience here in this country hundreds of years ago with yep. how gynecologists treated black women and, and did operate, you know, This is not the Tuskegee experiment that we're living through. So Michael's decision to not announce that was kind of more based on like, you remember like our relationship with AIDS in, in 80, in the early eighties,
0: how bad Eddie
1: Murphy was and we'd say, oh, I don't want the AIDS and you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 For him, it was like, that was admitting that something was wrong with him, like that sort of thing. So he'd rather just hide it. And it's like, dude, if you just admit it, like, okay, yes, even your beloved hero has, I mean, one, he could have helped people and brought Mm -hmm. attention to a situation. Right. But what you, what we now know of what became of his life, you know, post 85 to to his death is just what I was doing. Like his, him trying to hide Mm -hmm. and conceal and hide. Well, let me, Balance out the rest of my skin to look like this so that it doesn't look like that. But now I look like I'd rather, you know, for me, it was like I'd rather people just think I'm fat and unattractive than to ever admit that
0: you had a problem. I
1: had lymphedema. Yeah. And it really wasn't until 2018 that not only did I really deal with it because. In 2018, I, I I also discovered that a lot of uh, afflictions that we have, a lot of that stuff is
0: emotionally based. Correct. I, yeah, the mind body connection is is strong. Exactly. It's like something like 85 to 90 percent of disease is actually psychologically based. Not that the exactly. body doesn't have real reactions. No, no, it has real reactions. But, but, yeah. but yeah. The, the genesis, yeah, the of genesis, it the is, Nitis, Yep.
1: Is how your brain, I see it. In,
0: I see it when I work with clients all the time.
1: Yeah. Right. And so with me, I think just my fight or flight solutions were basically to hide in plain sight and just show no emotion, hide similar to like me hiding. Once I had lymphedema, like make sure I'm sitting in this position. So no one sees my legs and that was me for life. Like I didn't want to get, I lived in a neighborhood with a lot of bullies. Mm -hmm. So the worst thing my dad could ever say to me was like, go to the store and get some bread. And now I got to, sort of map out CSI style, like some <laughs> Vietnam, some Vietnam <laughs> chart on. If I take Addison Street, like I never go directly to the store. You got to go the scenic route. Like, okay, if I go by uh, old lady's, da, she's on the porch, then they won't bother me. And then I'll right. go all the way, three blocks over to Spruce and then make a left and then go to the store and then walk seven blocks. Like that was my life. Like just, you know, and I'm, I'm certain that a lot of that has contributed to this kind of fight or flight protection mode that your brain instantly does to your body to protect you. Yeah. And in my case, it overdid it. It's like, you know, like a mummy, like it, a protective wrap, except I did mine probably 47 million times over and had to sort of deal with this. So as of like really a year ago mm. when the world stopped, that's when I finally had to to yeah. you know stop cuz Cause cause even us
0: like you know I, I'm I'm you know obviously doing this podcast but also part of your team we made recommendations to you I mean I I've, I've been working with you at least 4 years at least 2 to 3 years ago we, like make consistent recommendations and you and you tell and you say okay yeah all right. Yeah. <laughs> <And> you, <laughs>
1: right you you have to you I know that the saying's always like you have to reach your lowest point I wish it wasn't like yeah. that a lot like it's you have to is, reach man. your lowest point. I'm glad I didn't get to, I, I, I'm seeing people now getting to their lowest point. I heeded the call maybe four steps away from the lowest, lowest point. point. Yeah. Okay. So I was fortunate enough to, to really truly understand that you gotta, you know, oftentimes like if your, if your parents tell you to clean the room, your version of clean the room is just throw everything in the closet close, yeah, close or the under the bed. Yep. And hey, the room looks, the room does look clean, but under your bed is like, you know, the Philadelphia Experiment or Chud. Right. Like, <laughs> right. And this is, this is me having to do a deep cleaning and totally empty out the room and, and do the floors and, you know, come back to a real, a new me. Well, it, you know, it comes
0: down, Amir, to basically accepting how you feel, right? That's right. the basics of it. Mm-hmm. Because even I feel like when you had the, quote, mistake when your, when your manager saw you changing in Mm -hmm. that moment, that wasn't a mistake, right? That was probably, oh, that saved my life. Yeah. That was probably a part of you that really wanted this thing to come out, right? Because as careful as you are, as intelligent as you are, you know where the hell to go to change, right? right? And so it all comes back to the image, you know, trying to protect the image and really just really needing to connect to yourself, connect to, you know what. Deep down inside, I really know there's something going on, but I'm just going to mm-hmm. push it all the way, push it all the way, push it all the way. Right. And so that's, that's important. And, and I know, cause I've seen the work you've gotten to that point with some help. You've gotten to that point.
1: Yeah. I, I've studied how smart our brain is, especially, you know, the other parts oh. of, oh the, yeah the other parts of our brain that we have no control over. Right. The unconscious. The alpha, the beta, the theta, the yep. data. Yep. I forget the, the, the fifth part. I'm certain that a lot of that also had to deal with, uh, uh, with maybe perhaps there was a, a psychological fear of success. Right now, I'm really obsessed with, I'm about to work on a film. Okay. I, I accepted my, my second film. I'm about to do The Life of Sly Stone.
0: Mm.
1: And a lot of people really don't know the intricacies of what Sly Stone's life was. But at the time when I was doing when I was cutting my Summer of Soul documentary, of which Sly is in, part of the narrative of the, the Sly contribution to that film was that his performance... Okay, so for your listeners that need context, I've been fortunate enough to be given my directorial debut, which is basically, in the shortest sense of it, even though I hate calling it this just for time, I'll, I'll, I'll make it quick, they call it Black Woodstock. In 1969, mm-hmm. the black equivalent of the Woodstock Festival happened two weeks before actual Woodstock. In Harlem. Yeah, in Harlem for over 300,000 people the summer of 1969. You know, it was documented and, and filmed just like its counterpart in Woodstock. And the story is basically when the film Woodstock came out, then all those acts became like household words. You know, like they were all world famous. And Woodstock wound up defining a generation. Like, I went, mean, Woodstock's just a town, but suddenly yeah. it's a way of life. It, it, when you say Woodstock, you instantly think of like, oh, hippies and peace and love and da, 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 da. LSD. Right. Well, all those things. <laughs> and the thing is, is that kind of in the ongoing story of Black Erasure, um, mm. they tried to sell the black version of this film and nobody was interested. And... They were like, but it's, it's like the Black Woodstock, and it's Stevie Wonder, and it's Slide and the Family Stone, and Nina Simone, and the Staple Singers, and B.B. King, and all these great luminaries, Hugh Masekela, you know, Mongo Santa Maria, like all these greats, and they were still like, nope, In Desperation Hail Mary attempt. they were like, but it's Black Woodstock, and they were like, eh, we'll pass. Mm. So it sat in the basement for 50 years. I get this film, finally. How
0: did you get it? You you knew about it? You knew that you had known, somebody presented it to you?
1: I didn't know about it. I'll say that my, my two producers, I'll be honest with you, because of the level, well, you know me well, but for those that don't know, um my level of pop culture collecting is sort of like have you ever seen uh a forty year old virgin? You know, the way that his house had like all the Star Wars, like big yes. accent. Yeah, that's me with like any soul artifacts, like oh, bootsie's rubber band lunchbox, five hundred bucks. Yeah, I'll get that. You know, <laughs> right. old Parliament funkadelic uh, concert tickets. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take that too. Like I'm that guy. Um, I'm a, I'm a pop culture hoarder, and so oftentimes different collectors will hit me up, and I just thought that these two were two guys trying to flex on me mm. about some mythical, alleged concert that. 300,000 people saw that I just Googled, and I didn't see one article about it. Wow. So you're trying to tell me Stevie Wonder, Sly on the Family Stone, and like 18 other acts of the day were in Harlem, given a concert, and it's just like Woodstock, and it was recorded, and not one person can talk about it, like no one— Right. So I thought they were just trying to game me up for some tonight, tonight show tickets. <laughs> you know, we were the hottest game in town. And, you know, right. like, I, I don't know if y'all I can get y'all in. But uh, they're like, yeah, we want to show you this footage. So let's come to the show. And da, 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 da. I'm like, okay. all right, y'all, y'all trying to gasp or whatever. OK, right. just take the tickets. You don't have to lie about it. <laughs> and so, of course, they come with the footage and I got humble real quick. And I was like, what the hell is this? And how come no one knows about it? And then instantly. And this this ties back to the narrative that I told you earlier. In an instant, I got scared. Yeah, No, like, oh, was like, no, no, never mind. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, uh, why, why? I, again, I got defensive. Yep, a word, why, why you want to date me now, huh? Right, because right, I'm cute, right? And then I thought, like, why would, why, why would you guys, why would you naive people give a first time? I just got my permit, and you're asking me to drive this eighteen wheeler truck.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why, why? I'm not a director. I, I produce. Like, let me be the mascot. Get a real director. I tried to duck and hide and duck yeah. and hide. And they kept knocking.
0: Kept calling.
1: You're the person to do this story. I'm like, dude, go to Spike. They're like, Spike, we got three movies after this. He ain't doing it. Well, Ava DuVernay? Nope. He got Malcolm Lee, Spike's cousin. Like, I named every, <laughs> I named every black director I could think of.
0: And they were like,
1: no, dude, we're coming to you because, one, you've written four books already. So we know you know how to tell a story. And, you know, you're just a natural storyteller. Like, why wouldn't you jump? If, if there's right. any chance for you to jump in the movies, this is the perfect entry for you. And I was like, well, OK, maybe right, I'll do it. Have you read um, The Upper Limit Problem by Gay Hendrix? No, I know Gay Hendricks name, but no, I never.
0: All right, I'll send you, I'll send you the link. It's a great book. It's it's a small read, but it's exactly what you're talking about. That we create these artificial boundaries for ourselves. Right. And then because we start touching it, then we do something to sabotage it. All All the the, time. All the time, automatically.
1: So the weird thing is that I know I'm very familiar with uh, self-sabotaging. Yes. You know, it's always easy for a person to see when other people have it but they can't, I forget the biblical (laughs) term. Like you, you can see, you can't see the board in your eye, but you see the speck of dust on someone else's uh, shoulder, that sort of thing. I famously have said that, you know, I've always been kind of uh, in the passenger seat next to some of the greatest artists of all time, but they all have like one thing in common. Like this artist always takes, you know, 10 years to finish their record. And this artist always constantly shows up late to their shows. Lauren Hill. This, I ain't saying names. <laughs> I ain't saying that they stopped talking to me for five years. And just recently started talking to me a year ago. I didn't say none of those things. No, but there's, 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 there's a common, like, I don't, I don't think, I think with most artists, it's, it's, there's that level of, Greatness, but then there's also another thing of just absolute questionable, and it's not even like artists, artists. Like anyone that you see that gets arrested multiple times, yeah. Anyone yeah. that you see
0: overdose. I mean, DMX is a perfect yeah, dude. Perfect, perfect I was example. I was going to say yeah.
1: like you know there's there's other vices that you can choose like you know there's women, food, drugs, fun, yeah. all those things. Yeah, and um, you know. In the case of Sly Stone, he does does this festival unannounced, sort of as a rehearsal for what will eventually be the the Woodstock Festival a week later. So he's just doing kind of a rehearsal for the Woodstock show. And the Woodstock show is going to change his life. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been struggling all of the 60s to get a foot in the door. He's been making music since 1960. And he's one of the most brilliant, musicians, songwriters, whatever. He's from the Bay Area. So that whole counterculture thing. Like he has one foot in San Francisco with all the hippies and then one foot in the Oakland with all the Panthers and all that. So he's like, he's really he's a product of the epicenter of counterculture and revolution and change that will spread across the world. Like one foot's in black power and the other foot is in tune in and tune out, man and peace and love. So that sort of thing. And just his whole presentation, like, you know, for, for those people at Harlem, he looked like an alien. They'd never seen a group not wear tuxedos on stage. They'd never seen women playing instruments. They never, like, this is a black band and you got a white drummer. They never seen an intersectional. Everything about him was new. And the thing was, is that he was literally the living manifestation of whatever Martin Luther King, this this utopian... Benetton ad, I know it's an old reference, uh, <laughs> for <laughs> Martin Luther King's uh, dream speech, like where black and white and, yeah. and men and women and, and cousins and friends get together. And like, that's what that group represented. And so when he does Woodstock and it changes his life and he becomes a household name, of course, his boss at, at, at Sony, Clive Davis, is like, dude, the next record you deliver Oh my God, you're going to be God. Mm. Now, mind you, this is 1969. So this is sort of like the mm-hmm. first of its kind. Now it's no big deal. You know, like back in 2006, uh, uh, a 24 year old Drake can be told by an a and yo man, you're going to be the biggest thing watch. You're going to be the biggest star in the future. I can, I can feel it. And Drake can accept it. But you know, like back in 1969 where previously not even previously maybe last month you know someone's trying to lynch you cuz you're black or whatever like to live in the 60s mm-hmm. and experience that level of, of terrorism that black people are going through like that that must be part of my friendship mind fuck especially if you're successful and you get to make it like you're chosen to yeah, make it the but guilt. yeah yeah the guilt of it all and so all sly has to do all he has to do is to simply take the ball, lay it up in the court and win the championship. And there's five seconds left in the game. No one's blocking him and he's running to the court and he jumps and he just spikes that ball out the stadium. And that's always been my number one obsession. Like what happened in 1970 that made you just like, that's the, that's the first true example of like artistic Sabotage. sabotage. Yeah, that I okay. saw and the difference between like his version of it and say maybe Billie Holiday's version where you could just say like, Oh, well it was drugs and, and she was a tragic artist. But this is someone that actually had like, Hey, we're going to give you the keys to freedom and he destroys it. And I've yeah. always been. And ever since then, there's been a series of, of artists from that period from 1969 to 50 years later that have sabotaged their stuff. And I've always truly wanted to unearth. So this is more about, this is trying to Trojan horse it where I'm trying to explore less about like Sly and the Family Stone's achievements and really get to the heart of the matter of why do artists always self-sabotage? Yeah, that's great. And so.
0: Yeah, it's important. I mean, it's just, is artists, but it's also their people, right? And it's a problem that w- that people have. You know that we get to a certain level in our head that we can't go over, and then we just put all kind of roadblocks and things in our own way. Yeah.